Today, we're taking you to 1990 South Africa, a place in time where the policy of apartheid had created a system of institutionalized racial oppression. For over 40 years, white South Africans, particularly the Afrikaners, held much of the wealth and power in the country and came up with policies as a way to keep it. The terror that existed in South Africa, that the dismantling of apartheid would result in the dismantling of you know, white farms and, and white ownership. That's Daniel Narcross there, a cricket commentator. Millions of black South Africans were removed from their homes and forced into rundown neighborhoods, stripped of their civil liberties and made to carry documentation if they wanted to enter white areas. They were beaten, arrested, and killed. Uh, there would be you know, blood running through the streets, what have you. That was one side of the nightmare. In the late 70s and early 80s, foreign governments started imposing sanctions on South Africa. Things like cutting off imports, economic sanctions, and banning the country from international sporting events. There was this feeling that should we be playing South Africa, well over half the people who, who made these decisions made the right one, which is absolutely not. You have to freeze out South Africa. That all changed on the 10th of May of 1994, when Nelson Mandela became president. Not only did his election promise the end of apartheid, but he set about to bring South Africa back into the fold of the international community. He committed South Africa to the Abuja Treaty, a policy of strengthening African cooperation. He offered troops for international aid missions. But his foreign policy attempts didn't just rely on laws and treaties. He also enlisted the help of his nation's sports teams. When Nelson Mandela became president, that changed everything. South Africa was brought back into the fold of international sport, generally both rugby, cricket, etc. Nelson Mandela planned to use South Africa's national teams to assist his foreign policy. He met with players and coaches, urged them to present a softer, less brutish image to the rest of the world. Hansi Kronje was right at the forefront of that. He was one of the, the poster boys, really, of the new South Africa, the post-Mandela South Africa. They've made documentaries and even a Hollywood film starring Matt Damon all about how Mandela leveraged the popularity of the South African rugby team to bring people together. No Hollywood film was made about it, but cricket was just as important in Mandela's strategy. So, Kranje, he said all the right things, did the right things, and brought South Africa a lot of wins in cricket. The man led his team to 27 victories on the world stage. He was voted the 11th greatest South African. But, like Icarus, he flew too close to the sun. And when you're flying that high, you're bound to get burned. This is the story of a sports hero's rise to fame and his fall from grace. Hansi's life was that of a Greek tragic hero. He, he rose to the very, very top. He was symbolic of everything that a new South Africa was trying to achieve. In some ways, I guess you could say Hansi was the chosen one, someone whose soft image and politically correct rhetoric would help restore order and balance to South Africa. The people loved him, and he loved them too. But in the end, he let a whole nation down. His greed got the better of him. In 2001, he suddenly plummeted to earth, utterly disgraced from the very, very peak of his powers. I'm Alzo Slade, 
And from something else, this is Cheat. The show where we ask the question, is it ever okay to break the rules? This week, The Bad Batsman. It's the early 90s. 24-year-old Hansi Cranier has just become the youngest captain of South Africa's national cricket team. The timing for Hansi was kind of perfect because he sort of came of an age when he could be thinking of starting a professional sporting career at just the time when apartheid was being dismantled and South Africa was allowed back into the, the, the sporting world. Hansi grew up in a middle-class Afrikaner family in the idyllic farmland suburb of Bloemfontein. He had a rather modest upbringing. While it was common for most white Afrikaners to own vast amounts of farmland, Hansi's family didn't. They weren't rolling in riches, but they weren't lacking either. They would have been elite, but within the white community, they were middle class, and he was an exemplary pupil. As a young boy, Hansi had only one focus. He dreamed of becoming a professional cricketer and he spent his school years working towards that goal. You have to appreciate that he was a poster boy. He was a head boy at his school. He was a terrific all-round sportsman. After Hansi left school, at age 18, he entered the world of professional cricket, first playing for the domestic state team of Orange Free State. When he first appeared in what's called first-class cricket, which I guess you imagine is domestic interstate games, Um, he started with a bit of a bang. Just three years after joining the team, he was made captain. And his playing style started to bring them trophies. He was a batter mostly. Uh, he was a man who, who, who hit the ball long distances, but he could construct long innings. And in cricket, in test cricket especially, that's a really important attribute to have. Um, fierce powers of concentration. But he was also seen as somebody who would play the game quite aggressively. Much like the balls he'd bat, Hansi's playing style sent him far in the world of cricket. And in 1994, at the age of 24, he became the youngest captain of South Africa's cricket team. I mean, if you look up Hansi Cronier on Cricketpedia, even if you didn't know there was a Cricketpedia, which is the Wikipedia for cricket fans, this guy is classed as an all-rounder, which means he can bat, bowl, and strategize. It's a kind of fitting classification because it wasn't just amazing on the field. Off the field, he created an atmosphere of acceptance and fairness. He gave fans from all backgrounds something to root for together. He was the perfect poster boy for it because he was a good Christian boy. He didn't appear in any way to be tainted by apartheid. He was seen as a politically correct, noble, decent man who was going to be able to bring this new era. Despite the election of Nelson Mandela as president and what seemed to be the end of apartheid, tensions were still running high between black South Africans and white ones. Watching and playing cricket was one of the few ways both groups could come together without the shadow of the past hanging over them. And for cricket fans, Hansi became a kind of glue holding them together. He was somebody that other white guys would be able to recognize in themselves. He wasn't scary. Um, he, he didn't scare the, the black population either too much because he would say the right things and be the right kind of guy. At the time, cricket wasn't like pro basketball or American football. 
This wasn't a game you made a lot of money playing. Instead, it was more like a summer job. Before that, in the 60s and 70s, players from the very best countries were, were actually semi-pro. They would be working in, in Australian players, used to work for their banks during the winter, and then they would play cricket in summer, and they didn't get paid a great deal. Hansi, however, was a different case. His wide appeal made him a national icon. There were posters of him left, right, and center. And we all know where there's fame, money quickly follows. Advertising was really important. And Hansi fed on that. You know, Hansi liked money. Slip into a pair of Hansi Cronier casual pants. And Hansi enjoyed endorsing things. Hansi Cronier, easy to care for casual wear. If you think that cricket's a minority sport, it's actually either the most watched or second most watched sport in the world. Hansi was one of the most popular athletes in South Africa, and cricket was one of the most popular sports in the world. With 2.5 billion viewers, it really is the second most watched sport in the world. And not to piss off any diehard cricket fans or anything, but it kind of looks like a game of baseball. I mean, someone throws a ball, the guy with a wide, flat bat hits it and does a couple runs. Domestic games are all played in the first-class cricket league. But most great sportsmen like Hansi, well, they work their entire careers to compete at the international level in the Test Cricket Championships. It's a sort of exercise in torture, really. And, uh, and that's why it's called Test Cricket. And that's why the people who are the very best at it are the ones who are sort of most adored in, in the world. All right, folks, I got a confession. Up until this point, it may have sounded like I know what I was talking about when it comes to cricket. Well, when we decided to do this episode, I had no clue. In the States, it's no secret that it's baseball, basketball, and American football. We do share love with the rest of the world for the grand sport of, well, that we kind of arrogantly and foolishly call soccer. But cricket, yeah, we don't do much of that. So I had to get up to speed on how this game works. And I'm sure most of y'all are more cultured than I and probably know the rules, but for the listeners who share my lack of familiarity, let's explain. How do we break this down? You have two teams of 11, they play each other, and you've got to get, uh, you've got to get what's called 20 wickets. Okay, whoa, whoa. Before we get into all these wickets, we might need to set the scene first. Ladies and gentlemen, picture a stadium surrounding a large green field. On the field are 11 players, 10 from one side and one batsman from the opposing team. By the way, a batsman is like a batter in baseball. At the center of the playing field is the batsman and the bowler. Okay, now the bowler is like the pitcher. Behind the batsman, are three upright sticks with two smaller horizontal sticks balancing on top. It's kind of like making the letter M with a bunch of large, huge toothpicks. And that together is called the wicket. Now, the bowler tries to throw the ball at the wicket and knock over the horizontal sticks. The batsman, on the other hand, has to guard the wicket. Hitting the ball as far as possible, he makes as many runs as he can to and from the wicket. Each team bats for an inning, and one inning can take a hell of a long time. 
an innings in cricket can last as long as, well, it has lasted as long as three days before. It can take five days to complete the game. And the team who gets the most runs wins, with one big exception. But if the side batting last has not been bowled out but has fewer runs, then they call it a draw. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Five days for one game? And it might even end in a draw anyway? Mm-mm, mm-mm. That's too much suspense stretched over too much time. I got stuff to do. If my team is going to win or lose, let it be in a matter of hours. And the possibility of it ending in a draw? That's just downright depressing. This is a peculiarity that people who don't follow and understand cricket find completely insane. But people who do think to be totally normal. And then, in January of 2000, Hansi Cronier, the man who loved this peculiar sport, he played in a five-day test match that would change the course of his life forever. That's coming up after the break. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. It's up in the air. Captain Cronier's underneath it. It's the 18th of January, 2000. The first day of a test match between South Africa and England. South Africa was the better side. Just pure and simple. South Africa is up to bat first, and they are smashing it. But Kellerman will get through for three and uh, post his ninth test hundred. They were overwhelmed by what was basically a better side, had better bowlers, had better batters. They are playing in their own conditions. South Africa looked like they were going to win the series with relative ease. And then came the rain. You can't play cricket in the rain uh, because the ball gets all soggy and the pitch gets all soggy. So while it rains, you have to just sit around doing absolutely nothing. And this game was bedeviled by rain. Rain delays? It's the same for baseball in the United States. But the game doesn't have the potential to go on for five days. So the first day, South Africa make it to 155 runs in about three and a half hours play. Around about half a day's play was possible. And the second day, the third day, and the fourth day are all washed out. It's rained all day, so there's no cricket. You're probably thinking getting a game called on account of rain would mean an easy win for South Africa's team. I mean, they're already in the lead. But England was batting last and hadn't been bowled out yet. 
which is bad news for South Africa. Remember that one weird rule? If the side batting last has not been bowled out but has fewer runs, then they call it a draw. But the audience wasn't totally mad. Nope. Plenty of people were placing bets on the game. And it's not just about how many runs a team scores. So all the people who are interested in betting on days, probably by the end of day two, had had a look at the weather forecast and they're lumping a load of money on the draw because it's got to be a draw. It's bound to be a draw. And then out of nowhere, South Africa's boy Wonder makes a decision which went against all logic. On the morning of the fifth day, England's captain, Nasser Hussain, gets approached by Hansi Cronje. And Hansi Cronje says, look, let's make a game of it. In cricket, captains pretty much decide their team's strategy in a game. And Hansi had a plan. Captains are entitled to forfeit an innings. So Hansi Cronje goes in, sees Nasser Hussain, and he says, let's go for 250 in around about 76, 77 overs. What does that mean? That means that means that England would have to go slightly quicker than they would normally go. So basically, Hansi's telling England's captain, Nasser, that if both teams forfeit a few innings, they'd be able to get through the game before things get called for rain. Nasser was all in. Nasser saying was pleasantly and delightfully surprised because you, you wouldn't expect this to happen. Now, there's nothing, England not going to lose anything by having a go. The game was on. Everyone's tuning into their radios in both South Africa and England. Everyone's, if they got, got it on the TV, are glued to it because from there being no spectacle, there was now the genuine possibility of an exciting bit of test cricket happening out of absolutely nowhere. For the fans, it was exciting. Balls flying long distances, both sides raking in wickets and scoring runs. South Africa went hell for leather to try to take the 10 wickets, and England went hell for leather to try to get the runs. Each team gave it their all. But in the end, it was England that came out victorious. A couple of fans were pissed off with Hansi. He'd basically given away a victory. Folks didn't understand why he opted to play the last day. Maybe it was a noble decision, putting on a show for the fans. Or maybe there were more selfish motivations at play. March 2000, two months after the England versus South Africa match, Hansi and his team have flown to Bangalore, India for the biggest test match of the season against India's cricket team. The series had been eagerly awaited, but not just by fans but by bookmakers as well. India is a place where betting is illegal, as it was certainly at the time. But this is the absolute sort of peak of match-fixing rumours and allegations that are swirling around cricket. And they're emanating. Despite being illegal, there was a thriving market for gambling. The bookmakers, they didn't give a damn. These guys weren't just placing odds on whether there'd be a win, loss, or a draw. they take bets on literally anything. What people are betting on then is starting to get a bit more sophisticated. So we're not just talking about, like in the test match, a draw or not a draw. We're starting to bet on things like how many runs is a certain individual going to score? How many runs is a certain bowler going to concede when they bowl? Now, 
where there's money to be made or lost, people are going to want to improve their chances of winning. We've seen it time and time again in sports. Scandals where a fighter or a whole team throw a match because the bookies have gotten to them, a.k.a. match fixing. This, however, was something else, something a little more niche. So this is the start of what we call spot fixing, which is a different kind of um, corruption in the game. To some people, it feels like this is a, a lesser corruption because, you know, the corruption might be, will you bowl a wide in this over? And somebody's gambled that somebody's going to bowl a wide or is going to concede a four, a boundary. I mean, it's these little cheats, I suppose. You know, Daniel's got a point. Letting a few balls slide here and there, ones that don't have a major effect on the outcome of the game. It's not exactly the same as throwing an entire game. But lesser corruption or not, it's still corruption. You can try and convince yourself that in the greater scheme of a game of cricket that lasts all day long, then letting one ball slide shouldn't make any real difference. And one of the people at the center of this spot-fixing wave was the captain of the away team, Hansi Cronier. Not a great thing to be dealing with so-called businessmen whose businesses are illegal in the country that they're operating in. So you start to get this terrible spiral. And um, Hansi found himself in a place where he was being asked to do ever more labyrinthine things. Bookmakers approached Hansi with opportunities to make a quick buck by letting a few balls drop. But ever the good Christian boy, Hansi refused. He kept his head down. There's the cut again. Good shot. He's hit that. Played the game. That's into the gap, and that's it. That's a great victory in South Africa. And led his team to victory. Cricket's played here. They've won a test match. Hansi Cronier had done it again. His team had beaten what was considered the most dominant cricket team in the world, and they'd done it on India's home turf. Hansi and his team returned home to a hero's welcome. Things were going well, and then news broke from the New Delhi police. Cronier and three other members of the national team are alleged by Indian authorities to have been involved in match-fixing during South Africa's recent tour of India. Yeah, you heard that right. But surely it can't be true. This is Hansi Cronier we're talking about. A national icon. South Africa's poster boy. I mean, the chosen one. There's no way he could have been involved in something like this. Right? I don't think that the vast majority of people could believe it when they heard it. Because Hansi had got such a fabulous public image. And a lot of people went to bat for Hansi. His old headmaster jumped on the TV networks to defend his former pupil. If he's made a mistake, he must take the rap, and we, but we will stand by him as we've always done through thick and thin. He's one of ours and he's one, he will remain one of ours. The managing director of the United Cricket Board of South Africa also supported him on TV. I know those players well. I know the South African team. I'm absolutely certain not one of our players would ever contemplate being involved in match-fixing. And Hansi Cronier himself in a televised press conference. I know of no member of any side that I have led who has done anything reprehensible or wrong. 
speculation and criticism directed against other members of the team is wrong and unjustified. Once again, India and South Africa were up against each other. But this time, the battle went beyond the cricket field. Officials in government and sporting bodies accused the Delhi police of lying, fabricating claims. So a whole load of excuses were initially, I think, made up for it. The Indian foreign minister, she too went on TV to make her case. Delhi's police, they weren't backing down. We have made the requisition for that which we have asked to get access or gain access to the FIR. We've also asked to gain access to the, to the, to the, to the tapes. The South African team didn't know it and Hansi didn't know it either. But the Delhi police, they'd placed wiretaps on his phone and had obtained damning recordings of Indian bookmakers and Hansi discussing spot fixing. More on that after the break. We'll try and describe for the commissioner <laughs> your mental state as far as you could work it out. Uh, over the last couple of weeks while you've been preparing for this commission and when you were preparing... Uh, it's June of 2000, two months after the Delhi police accused Hansi Cronier of spot-fixing, two months after they'd released transcripts of a wiretap conversation between Hansi and a bookie, Sanjay Chawla, where the men discussed who's playing and who's not, divulging team information and the amount to be paid to Hansi. Throughout this whole debacle, Hansi was backed by the South African government. But when the tapes were released, their resolve started to waver. They started to think, you know, hang on a minute. Maybe we got this thing wrong. Maybe it's Hansi who was in the wrong. It took the King Commission actually to do this publicly and get to the bottom of it. A public inquiry was launched, and man, did it throw open a whole can of worms. So... Y'all remember that match between England and South Africa in 2000? It's the one where South Africa was in the lead and then play had to be stopped because of rain. It's also the one where on the fifth day, Hansi made a deal with England's captain to forfeit some of their innings so they could put on a show. Folks never really understood why he did that. But now the truth was out. We subsequently discovered that the reason Hansi did that was because he was encouraged to do that by bookmakers, so he was making money out of it as well, and he was in a no-lose position because he was going to get paid as long as one side or the other won the game. Yeah, that's right. There seemed to be no noble motivation for Hansi forfeiting his team's points. He did so because there was money to be made. As the inquiry plowed on, more and more revelations about Hansi's shady deals came to light. This guy had been taking bribes for spot-fixing since 1996 including the very match that the Delhi police had brought charges for. But he didn't do it on his own. To do that, he can't do them all himself as captain. What he can do is try to suck other people into his world to do it for them. And this, I guess, is the point at which the story gets really murky and really awkward. In order to ensure the bookies got the outcomes that they wanted, Hansi approached some of his teammates and urged them to make certain decisions during play. One of those teammates was Henry Williams. Here he is being interviewed by television news at the time. I must go for less than 50, uh, more than 50 in my 10 overs. 
So what he basically said, I must underperform in that game. And um, we mustn't score more than 270. The team mustn't score more than 270, otherwise the deal is off. And did he tell you how much money you would get as a result of this? Uh, 25,000 years, that was the amount I can remember. $25,000? Yeah. You know, it never ceases to amaze me how little these people will take for bribes. I mean, if I'm going to put my life on the line, it's got to be for a hell of a lot more than 25,000 euros or dollars or whatever he accepted. As more accusations became public, Hansi started to crack. He decided to stop lying and come clean. Sanjay phoned me and urged me to go ahead with fixing the match, and I gave in. That's the bookie Hansi was recorded having match-fixing conversations with over the phone. I told him that I would go ahead. I was required to ensure that Gibbs would score less than 20 runs, that Williams would bowl poorly, and that the total score should be no more than 270 runs. I was to be paid for doing this. Listen, we all know that feeling when we're caught doing something we shouldn't be doing, whether it's lying to our parents, stealing candy from the jar, even cheating on our partners. It's the moment where our cheating is uncovered. The evidence is there, staring us right in the face, and we're left with no other choice but to say those guilty words. I'm sorry. I misled the United Cricket Board of South Africa and members of the South African government and those who tried to defend me. I also withheld facts from my legal representatives. I was not honest and I apologize unreservedly. The truth was finally out. South Africa's golden boy was in fact a bad batsman guilty of damaging the integrity of a nation's much-loved sport to line his own pockets. To them, it was an unfathomable crime. On the 11th of October 2000, Hansi was given a lifetime ban from the sport by the South African Cricketing Board. He died in a plane crash a few months later. The plane that he had intended to get wasn't going to take off, so he found a ride on a, a, a on a much smaller aircraft, flew in a storm, zero dis- uh, visibility, and it crashed into a mountain. And that was the end of Hansi Cronier. You know, when you look at things from the fans' point of view, you can start to see just how damaging Hansi's actions were, especially to the black South African community. They put their trust, faith, and love in this guy. Someone who, in some ways, was indicative of the racist Africana leadership that put them through hell. He was supposed to be the person who was going to help bring this country together. And it felt like another dreadful backward step in what was a continuing story of struggle for South Africa to shed apartheid. You know, you've got Nelson Mandela universally adored being let down yet again, it felt, by white South Africa. He said the right things. He did the right things. So people were willing to believe he was different from the rest, different from the Africana who couldn't be trusted. Maybe he once had the interest of unifying the people, but there was also another interest, self. It seems to be that when people are on top, They have a sense of invincibility. Most of us probably can't relate, but I imagine when the world treats you like a hero and convinces you that you can do no wrong, 
Maybe the idea of wrong becomes nebulous. Hansi Cronier, he lied and he cheated. And being banned from the sport was the price he had to pay. But what was the price paid by those who trusted Hansi? Those who thought he represented a new South Africa. Hey folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like Cheat, but better. It's just $2.99 a month, or if you're in the UK, £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Next time on Cheat. Most racetracks in America depend on public subsidies. And dozens of racetracks in America would close if those subsidies were pulled. They would close overnight. These like subsidies for horse racing have kind of happened in the shadows. The racing lobby doesn't want people to know about it. They want it to remain a secret. They bank on these things remaining a secret. Cheat is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. This episode was produced by Kaf Opata. The executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. The series editor is Tom Fuller. Production help from Megan Dietrich. Engineering, sound design, and scoring by Martin Peralta at Output Media. Our production coordinators are Jennifer Mystery and Iker Egbatola.